Welcome to Daily Daf Differently, a Jcast Network podcast in collaboration with the Conservative Yeshiva in Jerusalem. This daily podcast invites you to join us to study the Daily Talmud page with a variety of liberal rabbis and teachers. For more information about the Conservative Yeshiva, please visit conservativeyeshiva.org. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to Daily Daf Differently. This is Joe Rosenstein, and I'm a professor of mathematics at Rutgers University and the author of Sidur Eit Ratzon and Machzor Eit Ratzon. Today we will be studying Tractate Nazir, Daf Gimel, page 3. This tractate, Masechet Nazir, deals with men and women who make a vow to abstain from wine and all grape products, to refrain from cutting their hair, and to avoid contact with all dead bodies so that they don't become tame, or ritually impure. These requirements of a Nazir appear in Chapter 6 of Bamidbar, Numbers. On the previous staff we observed that someone who said, I will be attractive, while holding his or her hair, just like that becomes a Nazir. Note that in biblical times you have to be very careful what you said. The word translated as attractive is na'eh, which appears in a different form on Vehu in Shirat Hayam, the Song of the Sea. Ze'elivianvehu, this is my God whom I will glorify. So when a person pledging to be a Nazir says, I will be attractive, the implication is, I will glorify God, in this case with my hair. We noted yesterday that one might have thought that growing one's hair long led to the bedraggled look of a hermit, an outsider, an outcast from society. This phrase suggests exactly the opposite, that the Nazir had an attractive appearance that made him or her look a distinctive and that served, so to speak, as a recruitment vehicle that would lead others to become Nazirim. A question is raised at the very bottom of the previous page. How can a Nazir be considered attractive? For isn't a Nazir a sinner? Let us first discuss why someone would think that a Nazir is a sinner. Chapter 6 of Bamidbar notes that when the Nazir ends Nizirut, the term of the Nazir, he or she has to come to the temple and bring three offerings, a korban olah, which is consumed in flames as an offering to God, a korban shlamim, part of which is given to the kohanim, with the remainder providing a festive meal for the nazir and his or her guests, and a korban chatat, a sin offering. Since the nazir has to bring a sin offering, what might reasonably conclude that the nazir has in fact committed a sin. However, the text in Numbers gives no clue as to what that sin might have been. One explanation is that the Nazir's sin is in fact concluding his or her Nazirut, that ideally he or she would remain a Nazir. This explanation clearly is a pro-Nazir approach and has the assumption that being a Nazir is a good thing and that the only bad part of being a Nazir is leaving that state. But this explanation does not have a basis in the biblical text. Another explanation is that giving up wine is an offense against God, 
since the Nazir is not partaking of God's bounty. This explanation is derived from by Rabbi Elazar Hakapar on Daf 19a from the following phrase in chapter 6 of Mabidbar. The Nazir shall atone for having sinned against the soul. What soul has this Nazir sinned against? Her own. Why? Because she deprived herself of wine. And then comes a Kalva Homer argument that goes like this. If someone who deprives himself only of wine is called a sinner, then how much more so is someone who deprives himself of all things? Initially, we might respond positively to this anti-ascetic argument, since we don't think positively about ascetics. However, once we take a second look, our response would not be so positive, since this statement would also imply that vegetarians are sinners and teetotalers are Let us consider another possible explanation of why a Nazir might be required to bring a sin offering. Immediately before the discussion of the conclusion of Nazirut in Bamidbar, there is a discussion of what happens if someone dies in the presence of a Nazir. One of the defining characteristics of a Nazir is to avoid being in the presence of a dead body, and if such happens, the Nazir has become ritually defiled, Tameh, and, and has to start his or her Nazirut from the beginning, after a seven-day period of decontamination. In that case, a sin offering is prescribed, which is appropriate since the Nazir did not commit the sin intentionally. That's what happens if the Nazir knows that he or she has become Tameh. But what if the Nazir unknowingly was in a place where there was a corpse? It may have been likely that a Nazir, at some point during the Nazirut, passed through an area where there was a burial place, but didn't know it. In those days, burials may have taken place anywhere, and markers of graves may have been non-existent, or may have disappeared with time. So maybe the sin offering was required of every Nazir, just in case the Nazir did not actually fulfill the Nazirut completely. On the other hand, it may be that the sin offering was not required of every Nazir, but only in the case when the Nazirut was known to be flawed. That would make sense because the phrase cited above, the chiper alav me'asher chata ala nefesh, the Nazir shall atone for having sinned against the soul, refers only to the case of a Nazir whose Nazirut is flawed, and can be read, the Nazir shall atone for having sinned by being in contact with the dead body. That a sin offering is required only when the Nazirut is flawed is precisely what Rabbi Lazar Kapar suggests on today's daf. However, that view is rejected by the Gemara, because on daf 19, when the same Rabbi Lazar says that the Nazir's sin is depriving himself or herself of wine, the Gemara notes that that explanation implies that a sin offering is required even if the Nazir completes his Nazirut perfectly. So the question of why a Nazir has to bring a sin offering is not resolved, but even raising the question of whether a Nazir is a sinner and not resolving it does create a negative impression of the Nazir. 
We will return to this issue, whether the tradition admires or disdains the Nazir in a few days. By the way, I mentioned that, that at the, earlier that at the completion of the Nazirut, the Nazir brings three offerings. Actually, there are four offerings. At the ceremony that ends the Nazirut, the Nazir's hair is cut and the hair is burnt on the altar. As a result, the closing ceremony of the Nazirut is called Hitgalachat, since the root Gimel Lamet Chet means cutting hair. Since the other three offerings are two sheeps and a ram, you might conclude that only a wealthy person could afford to be a Nazir. It turns out that there was an established practice of finding a wealthy sponsor who would pay, who would pay for your Hitgalachat, and thereby merit some level of participation in your Nazirut. In the Talmud Yerushalmi, the Jerusalem Talmud, it is told that when Shimon ben Shatach was the head of the Sanhedrin in about 50 before the Common Era, he petitioned King Alexander Yanai on behalf of 300 Nazirim, that if Yanai would contribute half the cost of their offerings, he, Shimon ben Shatach, would contribute the other half. In the history of the Jewish people written in about 90 by Josephus, the Jewish general who sided with the Romans, he notes that the Jewish king Agrippa sponsored about 40 Nazirim. And in the Christian Bible, Acts 21, Paul is said to have sponsored four Nazirim, perhaps to demonstrate to the public that he still considered himself a Jew. Returning now to the discussion on Ardaf, the Gemara considers several other abbreviated vows that are listed in the Mishnah. For example, the Mishnah says that a person who says, Hareini Mechalkeel, thereby becomes a Nazir. What does that phrase mean? The word Hareini means, I am hereby going to. But, but the word Mechalkeel has several meanings. It can mean tending to the needs of people, as Joseph tended to his father's and father and brothers in Egypt. Or, as God tends to all living things. Mechalkel chayim bechesed, a phrase that occurs in the second bracha of every Amidah. But Mechalkel can also mean tending to one's hair. The Gemara follows Samuel's perspective with respect to all of the abbreviated vows. Their meaning depends on the context. If a person is holding his or her hair while stating Hareini Mechalkel or Hareini Mechalkel, then he or she is a Nazir, otherwise not. Similarly, if a person says, Hareini Kazeh, I'm going to be like that one, and says that while a Nazir is walking by, then he or she becomes a Nazir, but otherwise not. On the second side of today's daft, there's a new Mishnah whose main point is that one cannot be a partial Nazir. If you vow to let your hair grow long, then you are Nazir, even though you didn't vow to abstain from wine. If you even vow to abstain from using great pits, then you are an Azir, even though you didn't vow to avoid ritual defilement by dead bodies. If you make a vow involving just part of the vow of an Azir, then you become an Azir. As we have said before, you have to be very careful what you say. What would an alcoholic say if he wanted to stop drinking wine, but did not want to become an Azir? We don't know, but what he said would have had to been worded very carefully. Before considering the discussion of the Gemara, let us review exactly what chapter 6 of Numbers Bamidbar has to say about wine. 
Yayin v'shechar yazir. The nazir should abstain from yayin and shechar. Chametz yayin v'chametz shechar lo yishteh. The nazir should not drink vinegar made from yayin or shechar. V'chol mishrat anavim lo yishteh. The nazir should drink should not drink juice made from grapes. Va'anavim lachim v'veishim lo yochel. And should not eat fresh or dried grapes. Kol yemei nizro, all the days of his or her nizirut, mikol asher yeaseh migefen hayayin, mecharsanim ad zag lo yochel. The nazir should not eat anything that is made from the grapevine, from pressed grapes, or even from the pits. Before we discuss yayin v'shechar, a phrase that I did not translate above, let us note that nowhere else in the Torah is there a blanket prohibition against everything made from grapes. The Kohanim, when they were on duty, were, forbid, were forbidden to drink yayin v'shechar. But the Nazir is unable to make kiddush even with grape juice. What is the reason for this broad prohibition? No reason is given in the Torah. But presumably they believed that the grapes and their derivatives could ferment even after being ingested. Whether this is true or not is unclear, but there is at least one website that claims that if you have the right genetics and physiology and eat the right foods, you can brew beer in your stomach. You may have noticed that the word nazir occurs in a verb form in the cited passage, miyayim v'shechar yazir, which we have translated as the nazir should abstain from yayin v'shechar. Some translations say that the Nazir should separate himself from Yayin V'shechar, implying that the principal meaning of the word Nazir is one who separates himself, supporting the hermit model of Nazir, which we have rejected. Indeed, although the Torah could have used Yazir in speaking of separating oneself from the dead, it does not. It does use the phrase Yazir L'Adonai, which is usually understood as consecrated to Adonai which is another way of saying Kadosh Ladonai, which is also used to refer to the Nazir. So we can't be sure of what the root Nun Zion Resh of the word Nazir really means, since it is used in different ways and its meaning depends on the context in which it is used. Now we turn to the question of what is Yayin V'Sheikhar. We know that Yayin means wine. But what is Shechar? Many translations assume that Shechar refers to other intoxicating drinks, because you would think that such drinks would be prohibited to the Nazir. However, the word Shechar appears only 23 times in the Bible, and in all but two of these, Shechar is in conjunction with, or is parallel to, Yayin. Two particularly noteworthy occurrences of Yayin and Shechar are near the end of Deuteronomy, where Moshe reminds the Israelites that they haven't had Yayim V'Shechar during their 40 years in the desert. Maybe that's why they complain so much. And in Vayikra, where Aaron and his two surviving sons are commanded not to perform their ritual duties after having drunk Yayim V'Shechar. Since this command comes directly after Aaron's other two sons are executed, after bringing Esh Zarah, strange fire before God, the implication is that drinking wine was a contributing factor in their offense. 
Hmm, that seems to contradict Moshe's statement that they didn't have wine during their wanderings in the desert. One of the places where Shechar appears alone is in Psalm 69, where it is used to create a rhyme. The other place where Shechar appears alone is in Numbers, Bamidbar, 28.7, when in describing the daily offering to God, the Korban Olah, the Torah says that the libation to accompany the Korban Olah shall be poured in the sanctuary, Nesach Shechar Ladonai, a libation of Shechar for God. In other words, Shechar is used as a libation offering. That means that Shechar must mean wine, for all other libation offerings are specified as wine. But then what is the difference between Yayin and Shechar? Several possibilities are mentioned. One is that Yayin refers to new wine and Shechar to old wine. Another is that Yayin refers to wine used for sacramental purposes and Shechar is non-sacramental wine. A third possibility is that Shechar was too strong to be potable and was diluted with water in order to create the more potable yayin. But what about other intoxicating drinks? And can't other fruits become fermented? We know that beer was discovered and used in the Middle East over 4,000 years ago and so must have been known to the Israelites. However, it is not specifically prohibited. As an aside, there is apparently no word for beer in the Bible. The modern Hebrew word for beer is thus, bira. Since the Kohanim were not allowed to perform their duties while inebriated, presumably their prohibition against Yayin Shechar must have included other intoxicants. So it seems that even though Shechar meant wine, it was used colloquially to include other beverages as well. Indeed, in Josephus' account of the story of Samson, the angel tells Samson's mother that her son should avoid all other kinds of drink, for so had God commanded, and be entirely contented with water. Philo Judaeus, a Jewish philosopher who lived in the first half of the first century in Alexandria, claimed that not only the Nazir, but even the Kohanim were permitted to drink only water, presumably while they were on duty. We mentioned earlier that the new Mishnah on this page asserts that if you make a vow involving just part of the vow of a Nazir, then you become a Nazir. The Gemara notes that Rabbi Shimon disagreed with this Mishnah and that argued that a person does not become a Nazir unless he or she means to fulfill the entire vow of the Nazir. And then notes that the opinion of Rabbi Shimon was a minority opinion and was overruled by the rabbis of the Mishnah. Why did the rabbis come to that conclusion? The editors of the Gemara imagine a scenario where a person vows to abstain from yayin. They think that the rabbis would argue that that vow is sufficient to make a person a nazir. Wouldn't we want the person to also vow to abstain from shechar and from grape juice and from grape pits, in effect to recite the first eight verses of Numbers chapter 6? Then the Gemara asks why Rabbi Shimon is not convinced by the reasoning of the rabbis. And he responds that the Torah has to tell us that the Nazir can't drink either Yayin or Shechar because the Nazir is prohibited even from drinking wine when it is a ritual obligation, like Kiddush or Havdalah. That's Yayin. And also prohibited from drinking wine which is not a ritual obligation. That's Shechar. If a person vows not to drink Shechar, 
then perhaps his oath means that he will that he will drink wine for Kiddush, but no other wine. Uh, as an aside, note that Rabbi Shimon is not present for this conversation. He lived hundreds of years earlier. The reasoning of the rabbis and the response of Rabbi Shimon, although they may be plausible, were likely made up by the compilers of the Gemara. The daf ends with a question. Isn't the wine of Kiddush and Havdalah obligatory? Unstated is the implication. If so, the whole idea of an Azir is contrary to the Torah. We will discuss, we will deal with this question at the beginning of tomorrow's session. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Daily Daf Differently, and that you'll join us again tomorrow for a new page. The music at the open and close of this episode is Ufros from the Epic Horus album One Bead, available on Bandcamp, iTunes, and Spotify.